0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, morning, everybody. Good morning. Okay, that was good. There we go, okay. So we are continuing today with our study in Matthew. We are in Matthew 18 today, which consists of five different stories. The first off being the disciples asking Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Second one being the result of those who caused Jesus' people to stumble. The third being the parable of the wandering sheep. The fourth, dealing with sin and discipline in the church. And the fifth, the parable of the unmerciful servant. So we have lots to cover. Good thing you guys don't have to be anywhere after this because it's going to take a minute. Um, I've titled today's sermon... Uh, stay humble. This is a older term. I remember hearing this growing up as a wee child. Um, stay humble. Stay alive. That's what my teacher said to me pretty often. Or stay awake. Not stay alive. I was always alive. Stay awake. Yeah, but before we get started, let's pray. So right heads on please. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that you've brought us all here today. Lord, I pray that your spirit rests on us. Lord, we pray that you, God, just open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. And God, open our minds to take action to what you're calling us to do. Lord, I pray that you just use me, God, and fill me with your spirit, hide me behind your cross, Jesus. I just want to speak your words. God, we give this time to you, help us to glorify you, to love you, and to turn you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what is setting up this next stage after we're coming off of chapter 17, which Jesus on the mountain transfigured down to when he was in the temple, uh, with the temple tax. Now we're entering kind of where they are, into time of teaching. Jesus is telling stories, talking with the disciples, teaching them kind of what to do when he dies. Because, spoiler alert, Jesus is about to die. It's coming up soon. We got two weeks left in the calendar year until Jesus' death. And so he's preparing the disciples and showing them examples, telling them what to do for when he dies. And he starts off this chapter... By giving them the parable, or I guess the the teaching of um, who's the grace and kingdom of heaven. So the disciples come up to Jesus and ask, Who then is the grace and kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So it's super interesting because it starts off with the disciples saying, who's, who's the best in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the best? I can picture the disciples saying, who's the best? Is it me or is it Andrew? You know, me or him? Because, you know, we were the chosen ones. So who's the best in the kingdom of heaven of us? And Jesus says, it's not about that the greatest in kingdom of heaven is the one who becomes like a child. That's what we're going to focus on. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of a, chi- lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that he uses a child here. Um, I'm not a parent. I'm, I know there are people in here who are parents. My mom's a parent. She's here. And children need parents, right? I don't know if you've ever done this. Hopefully not. Have you ever taken a child, smaller child, put them in the woods, said, okay, I'll be back in five days and left. You come back in five days, the child's probably not there or alive. Because children have this unique makeup, this unique stage in life, right? They're super vulnerable. They're defenseless. They'll die if left alone. They're dependent on their father or mother. And Jesus is saying whoever takes up a lowly position like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this to adults or teenagers, most likely adults, either one. But they're in this position where they have authority, either in society where they could watch children, right? Like they're higher than children. Maybe they have a family and they have this authority that they could flex because they are leading children. Maybe at work, they have jobs where they're in a position of leading. And Jesus is saying all that authority you have, you're supposed to take a lowly position, You're supposed to take where you are and humble yourself like a child. It's to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility sets the tone for this chapter. Oh, I get so excited to preach the word, guys. Oh, I'm sorry to be here with you. Humility sets the tone for this entire chapter. This is where Jesus starts. And then throughout this whole chapter, I mean, there's a story or two that don't deal with humility, but they could all kind of be traced back to this main point. Of humility. And Jesus is calling the disciples, humble yourselves. You know, you don't know everything. You need me. So become like a child. A childlike faith, right? We've all heard that. And that's a super cool idea, right? Super cool thought, right? Like, humble yourself. We all need to be more humble. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I need to be a lot more humble all the time. Talk to Sammy later. But we need to humble ourselves. And like, okay. Cool, David, humble. But the coolest part about this, and when I was, after I wrote this sermon, the Lord showed me this through me praying, and then someone prayed over me. It was, it's not just we have to be humble, right? But we have to understand that God and Jesus is the ultimate display of humility. Right? All the humility we have to show, he showed first. Throughout his entire life. Let's start with his birth. Right? Philippians 2, 5 to 7 says, your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You know, we forget that so often. God became human. How weird is that? God, like, like, you know, the one that created the earth and the universe and all of us and the stars and the plants and the animals became human. He has so much power. He has so much glory. He could do whatever he wants. Yet he chose to take the form of a human, to become a servant. And not only did he choose to become human, when he was born— He was born in a really flashy way in a palace, right? He was born in a farm, in a manger, surrounded by animals. Talk about being humble. God was born right next to a donkey. In the hay. No crib for his head. And then on top of that, he wasn't even home. He was on the road. He wasn't even born in his hometown that he grew up in. And then on top of that, we read in Isaiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root from dry ground. He grew up like a human, right? From baby to adult. And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't even handsome. God! Decided to come down, take the form of a human and not even a highly exalted human. Not even a king, which he deserved to be. A normal human person. And so if that's not humanly enough that God is willing to be born to serve us. Look how he lived his life. There's hundreds and hundreds of examples I could use here, but we're going to look at John 13: 12 to 17. When he'd finished washing their feet, the dirtiest part of someone's body, because they were walking around in the dirt and everything, he washed all the disciples' feet, he put his clothes, he put on his clothes, and returned to his place. "Do you understand what I have done for you?" he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than him who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He washed their feet. He came to serve as an example. He came as the lowest of the low. As he lived, didn't strive for status, continued to put himself at the bottom To serve. The humility of Christ. We continue on. His birth, his life, his death. We're going to be talking about it more in two weeks. Continuing in Philippians 2, this is just the end of the paragraph that we read for his birth. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All because he was obedient, even to the point of death. So we're going to look at his death more in two weeks, but how did he die? On the cross, a criminal's death, even death on a cross. Like not only did he die, Paul is stressing, but he even died on a cross. He even died the way criminals died. And he wasn't special when he died on the cross because there were two criminals right next to him too. He was accused found of doing nothing wrong, tortured, beaten, flogged, and died. Because he wanted to serve us. God, right? God, who was born as a human, like you, wrapping your mind around that is crazy enough. That God decided to become human But then that human God, who could have had a hundred angels come and save him from that cross, died. Why? To serve. How much humility is that? You know, a lot of us have a hard time embarrassing ourselves in public. Imagine the embarrassment that would have been thrown upon him when he was dying a criminal's death. Yet he humbled himself, humbled himself to serve. Then we continue his birth, his life, his death to now. We're about to read uh, Matthew 6, 9 and 13, the Lord's Prayer. Um, I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Read it in whatever form, the thy, the you, sin, transgression, debt, whatever. Uh, Read it in whatever form you memorize or you can read on the screen, but let's say it together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You realize when we say this prayer and when we pray in general, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. When we pray, we ask God, hey, come, heal us, fill us, use us, whatever. That's continually asking God, hey, we know where you belong. Thy kingdom come, that's heaven, come here. Humble yourself and come reside with us. And he gave us this promise that he's never going to leave nor forsake us with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Spirit that enables us to keep going. We feel like we can't go anymore. The Spirit that enables us to heal, to know him. But if the Holy Spirit is God, then belongs in heaven, right? He belongs in heaven because that's where God belongs. God belongs in a place where there's thousands and thousands of angels worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, because that's how good he is, but he continues to show up in our lives. And if you haven't experienced that and you haven't seen him show up in your life, He will, he does, and he'll do it over and over again. He'll humble himself a hundred times over if it means you will know him, if it means he can make himself known, if it means he can serve and love. That's the God we serve. And so if he could humble himself, then, And now he's giving us the same charge. We are called to go and humble ourselves. Become like children. How much do children hold on to realistically? Like young children, like nothing. When I was a child, I'd run around, hit my head, get up, keep going, right? Like nothing affects children. That's what we're supposed to become, like children with our Father in heaven. He doesn't have to be with us, but he chooses to be with us. The one who belongs in heaven, the one who's always belonged in heaven, spot glorified that he created, chooses to come down, chose and chooses to continue to be with us. All right. If I had another half hour, we could do it on this, but I don't. So we're going to keep moving. Matthew 18, 12. So we're skipping the story of the stumbling block um, where uh, Jesus says, those who cause my children, uh, now he's referring to children, not as children, but as his disciples, his children, um, to stumble. It's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and then thrown into the water. Um, It's better for you to cut out cut out your eye or cut off your hand and enter into heaven without an eye or hand than to face the punishment that our father has for those who cause others to stumble. Then we jump into this. Jesus is telling this parable right after that. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing to let any one of these little ones perish. You see, what's interesting about sheep is they're very similar um, to children, very innocent. You know, if a sheep wandered off into the wilderness, it likely wasn't going to survive the night. Bottom of the food chain, as they say. Anything. Lion, fox, coyote, goat, hunter, broken leg, falling down a cliff, whatever. Um, A lost sheep likely would not make it through the night. And yet, so shepherds have to run after it. It's the same way God runs after people with his urgency. God continues to run after his creation. He will continue to chase after them. And have you ever thought, like, okay, it's good that the one comes back. But like, wouldn't you love the 99? Like here, it sounds like, oh, he's more so rejoicing about the one. But like, I never left. You know, he's referring to to the church. So why, why does he not like that we stayed? Or why does he not rejoice as much over us staying? Luke 15 supports this. It says, in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents, there's rejoicing over that. There's not rejoicing over the 99. Why is that? It's because we have come to know the power of God. We have come to know the power of his resurrection, which means participation in his sufferings, but that's a later time. But we know him. We know his power. We know his glory. When someone is lost, who who repents, who is saved, who turns from their ways, the power of God is seen to everybody. When one person's life is changed, everybody could see it. Those who are Christian, those who aren't Christian. The power of God is on display in that person's life. The power of God has touched them so much that they have returned. And there is a party up in heaven, as I like to say. Imagine all the angels singing and dancing and rejoicing because one soul, one person got to know the Lord. That is the Will of our Father, who is not willing to let any of these little ones perish. You know, this verse, not willing to let any of the little ones perish, shows up similar in Second Peter. It says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We all remember that verse, I'm sure. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's twice now. You know, there aren't many places in the Bible where it says the will of God. God is not willing to let any one of these little ones perish. It's his will, it's his desire to not let any of these little ones perish are there many places in the Bible that say this is his will? And when I was reading that, I was thinking, what's our will? Because our will should be the same as our Father's will, right? As God in heaven. this God who wills for no one to be lost. And yet for me, it's so easy to think, oh, I'm here to more so disciple them, you know. Or, oh, I'm at the grocery store to get my groceries and go home and cook this meal. Or, oh, I'm running out to wherever to do one thing. I'm going to the pet store to wash my dog because he really needs a bath. He does really need a bath. And I just want to get him bathed and get him home. Right? My will is to do like what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to get things done. I'm trying to move. I'm trying to get quick. In and out. But the will of our Father is for everyone to know Christ. There's a man um at my home church, fantastic man, uh, great preacher, evangelist person who he went to Duncan every day, all the time. If you're if you live in New England, you go Duncan every day, and if you don't, you're not from New England. So that's kind of the preset of this story. And so I remember one day I went out to Duncan with him, we got coffee, and uh, he said to the girl counter, hey, I'm praying for you. She said, uh thanks. Um, I don't know if she called him Grant or Russ or which, which name he used. But hey, I'm praying for you. She said, thanks. So we sat down like, hey, it's really cool that um, you offered to pray for or that you pray for, you know, this lady. He said, I come in here every day at the same time for six months. I came in here every day. And i told her I was praying for, her, and I have been praying for it every day for six months. After about four months, she said, hey, why are you always praying for me? He said, because I love you. That's what he always says, because I love you. She goes, what does it mean? What do, you, what do you mean you love me? He got to share the gospel with her. And now, I don't know if she was saved at that point, but, but she would ask him for prayer. She said, hey, can you pray for me now for this, for this, for that? And there were, there were actually two girls at the coffee shop. The one wasn't there that day, but he would always go every day and talk to these two girls at Dunkin' Donuts who work there. That was my best interpretation of someone whose will it is to not let anyone perish. He went to Duncan. He said, this Duncan, if it's the Lord's will for them not to perish, it's going to be my will too, and I'm going to talk to them. Because it's the Lord's will. And he'd do that everywhere. I mean, he, was just a, he is just a fantastic guy, but... The will of the Lord. How often do we take up that mindset? Take up that mindset of, Lord, I'm giving you my will. And I want what you want, not what I want. Oh, that's a tough prayer. Lord, less of me and more of you in my life. That's so hard. Because we want to hold on so much. But then it comes into play Humbling. How humble do you have to be to give your whole life to someone? I was praying, um, I guess, this past week sometime. I said, Lord, I just want to give you everything. So I started listening off. All right, Lord, I'm giving you my job. I'm giving you my house. I'm giving you my dog. I'm giving you my relationship. I'm giving you everything. So I I started listening things off. I started listening off. I'm like, oh, this hurts. Because I hold on to that, right? Like my cares... My worries define who I was. Like Dave loves the Patriots. So when Patriots make a good signing, David's going to talk about the Patriots. But when I surrender that to God, I'm saying, Lord, your will, your desire is greater than mine. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord who humbled himself to die for me and say, Lord, take it. God, take everything. God, even if it means less of me and less of my desires, less of my thoughts, I'm okay with that? Oh, that's so hard to pray. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be okay with that. Moving on to the next part. Uh, next in Matthew 18 is church discipline. Um, when I first told Sammy I'm preaching on Matthew 18, she goes, the church discipline chapter. I said, no, no. <laughs> church discipline is like five verses in this chapter. (laughs) But this is why this chapter has been known as Matthew 18, how to deal with believers who you are differing with, who you have agreements or arguments with, or who you see sinning, how to deal with sin in the church. And so I'm just going to summarize it for you. I'm not really going to read it all. Um, So basically how it goes is if you have a problem with one believer, so I use Sammy as an example last time, I use Sammy as an example again. Like if I have a problem with Sammy, right? whether it's a sin issue or a different issue, like you, you really shouldn't be treating that person that way. I'll go up to Sammy, excuse me, and say, Sammy, you shouldn't be doing that. And I feel this way because of this and this, this. And then show the chance to change. And if she doesn't, then I'll take one of my friends and we'll go. I'm like, Sammy, hey, we see this in your life and we think it needs to change. And if she still doesn't change, then I say, okay, Sammy, come on up. Put in front of the church. Sammy, we see this problem in your life. And we think you need to change. And then if she still says no, um, you treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector or an unbeliever. Um, That's how it's said. So it's important to note that this doesn't mean necessarily the church building, but it's a faith community. So it could be a small group, a large group, whatever. But treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them as a pagan or tax collector. Maybe even a little worse than unbelievers. Right? And so this is calling the accused to humble themselves. This is calling the person who's accused of doing the wrong to say, I am wrong. And I see that. And I'm going to change. And it's very easy to leave at that. That's why I've left it ever since I've known the passage. Right? Like, yeah. Accused, you better change. But it's also a call to the accusers once they leave the church. The accusers need to love. Because if we treat them like a pagan or tax collector, how do you treat unbelievers? I'm sure you don't give unbelievers the cold shoulder. I'm sure you don't give unbelievers the, I'm never going to talk to you again, never come in my church building again. But you show them love. You show them compassion. They become your mission field. So when someone in the church slips away like that due to sin or other issues, we as a church aren't called to say, get out, good, stay away. It's they're now unbelief, they're now our mission field. Hey, listen, here's truth and here's love. And I wanna show you all the love that I'm showing everybody else, because that's what God called me to. And I wanna bring you back to truth. I want to bring you back to where you belong because the will of God is for everyone to be saved. And if that's my will, I'm going to love you and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to try to get you back there. That's my biggest takeaway from the church discipline section. We got to keep rolling. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21, 22. So after that, Jesus... Then is asked this question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times Peter asked this. You know, seven times, I think Peter thought he was probably being generous because the average rabbi would say three. So the average teacher would say three in this time period. Three times you forgive. It's like, if I really didn't like... What someone was doing? Oh, I'll forgive you this time. Just change it next time. I'll forgive you this time. I'll forgive you this time. And then, okay, you're done. You're out of my life. You're done. So Peter goes seven times. So much more than three, more than double. The number of perfection in the Bible, right? The Lord created the world in seven days. So seven times, right? And Jesus' response is, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or infinite. It's not really about the number. You know, 77, or some say seven times seven, that's 49, but still. It's not just a number. It's astronomically more. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive until you can only forgive again. That's what Jesus did with his death on the cross. Is his blood already paid for all the sins we've committed or are going to commit. And he's going to forgive. He's going to forgive. He's going to forgive. As long as we keep turning to him, he's going to forgive. And we are called to the same thing, to forgive. And then he gives this illustration. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. How much is every, How much is 10,000 10, right, 10, bags? Is that what it says? 10,000 bags of gold? How much? Right, not that much. And only around 9.5 to 12 billion dollars in today's currency depending on the quality of the gold. That's it. Raise your hand if you have $12 billion. Hey, come on. Mike Reifmider does. (laughs) $12 billion. So Jesus is illustrating there's no way this servant could pay back his debt. It's just not possible. Even if he worked every day and broke his back every day, he was not going to pay back $12 $12 billion, which makes what this says all the more powerful. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled his debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. It's 100 days wages, um, 100 drachme. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me," he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged, "Be patient with me; I will pay it back." Same words he said, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had man thrown into prison until his debt could be repaid. The parable of the unmerciful servant. You know, what comes to mind is the golden rule, right? Do unto others what you would have done to you. He asked for mercy from his master. For a debt he could not repay, his master granted him that mercy. And he went around and he took that freedom that was given, because he could have been thrown to prison, to do the exact opposite that was done to him. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servant just just as I had you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should repay his debt. This is how my heavenly father will will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart from your heart. See mercy forgiveness isn't just something done with the mind but it's from the heart. And giving mercy is inherently showing humility. Right? Like he deserved 12 billion dollars. 9.5 to 12 billion dollars. He deserved it. But he was saying, "No, no, no. I know what I deserve." And I'm going to say, you can go free. He humbled himself. For this person to then go around and use what his master gave him, this freedom, to not be humble. He turned around and he used it for his good, for what he wanted to do for what he wanted, what he thought he was owed. Isn't that such a crazy thing, right? Like he owed billions of dollars, but then turned around and he felt like he was owed something. You know, And Jesus, we owe so much. The penalty for our sin is so much. Yet Jesus canceled it out. And yet at times we could walk around as if we deserve stuff. At times we could walk around saying like, oh God, why'd you choose me to do this? Like I deserve better. Or God, I deserve that house that he has or she has, right? I'm better than them. I deserve that. It's so easy to get caught up in what we think we deserve. But then you look at Jesus who deserved everything and got nothing but death. Which leads us to our question, where are we humble? How humble are we? And then the prayer that I've been praying this past week, and I'll encourage you to also pray, is God make me like a child or make us like children. I realize I mistyped that. But God, make us like children. Make us so that we don't rely on anything else but our Father. That we need you more than we need ourselves. Because without you, I'm like a floppy fish. Like, have you ever seen a, like a child, like particularly like a young child, like around one, you just put them in the middle of the room, they're just like flopping around, like trying to crawl, they can't crawl yet. It's like, what are you doing? And it's so innocent, so cute and beautiful, but also like, what are you doing, bud? You know, I feel like that's how the Lord looks at us. But yet we have the opportunity to always be in that position of, Lord, if I fully surrender my life to you, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I don't know what's going on anyway. Again, how do we do taxes? I haven't done them yet. (laughs) I asked you guys last week. (laughs) See me after if you know. But we have no idea how to do life anyway. So why not surrender to the Lord? Why not fully humble ourselves and say, God, okay, I'm actually going to give this to you. Because whenever I try to take control, I might be speaking for myself, I mess it up all the time. I mess up all the time. But yet when I give it to him, I, I still mess up sometimes, but that's okay. I'm turning to my father, turning to my creator, waiting expectantly for the love that he has to just pour out for the forgiveness, for the guidance, for all the good things, because the Lord's just a bunch of good things. For all the good things he has to come to me. So, what's your response? Where are you humble? How are you humble? Do you want to be like a child? Can you be like a child? Will you seek to be like a child? With that, I'll have the worship team come back up. And we are going to close by singing the song Evidence.